Welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. Weeks, if I have that right, and we have a couple more weeks after this morning in a sermon series titled Refocus. Uh, and what we are doing as we've walked through these last 18 months or so, we're asking the Lord to refocus our lives on the wisdom from above, the wisdom from God. And, and the way we've been doing that is to going through one of the books of wisdom, which is Ecclesiastes, is the one that we are going through. I've said this before that uh, I feel like I spend more time in sermon prep on this series because going through books of wisdom, uh, and at least in my experience, is like I've described it like this, is, is beating on a rock until it finally splits open and you see the beauty of what Solomon here, the preacher, is telling us. So I pray that that's been true for you, that the Lord has shown you how to walk in wisdom more and more as we've spent this time. Ecclesiastes 10, we'll, 10, we'll be looking at the entire chapter um, this morning. What the preacher has been doing, the preacher being the writer of Ecclesiastes, that's how he identifies himself, is he's told us that life is vanity. And what he's saying is that life is a vapor. Life is fleeting. He's not saying that everything in life is completely pointless, but he's saying apart from the Lord, yes, that is meaningless, but nevertheless, our life is fleeting. Our life is, is vain is the way that he describes that. And only satisfaction comes when we, when we realize that true wisdom comes from fearing the Lord. And satisfaction comes when we realize that, God, that, give, that life is a gift from God. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, we kind of reach this pivotal point in Ecclesiastes 8.12, where the preacher says that, uh, where the preacher sees, as he describes, that all will be well for those who fear God. So in the craziness of this world, in the uncertainty of this world, the fleetingness of this world, when, when the world just doesn't make sense as the preacher so adequately describes, one, he sees all of these things. One thing he knows, Ecclesiastes 8.12, is that all will be well for those who fear God. Now, when we get to Ecclesiastes 10, if you're looking at your Bibles, you'll see in the format of the way that it's laid out that, that the preacher is becoming more proverbial at this point. He's becoming, if you will, a little practical in the application of what he's been talking about in Ecclesiastes thus far. Let me ask you a question. Is there, is there a food or ingredient, or some sort of, or something like that, that you just can't get past the smell of. In our 14 years of marriage, there has been one meal that I've put in my mouth and spit back on the plates. My wife hasn't cooked that again. It was tuna casserole. Does anybody like tuna casserole? Hot. I don't know how you do that. I could not get past the smell. I'll eat, I'll eat tuna out of the can. I'll eat tuna steak. I'll eat tuna raw. I'll eat tuna in all shapes and form. But tuna that has been heated out of a can, there is something about that smell that I smell when it's cooking and I bring it to my mouth that I just can't get past the smell of it and it ruins the entire meal. Just a little bit of tuna ruins all those noodles and cheese and whatever other mess is in that casserole. Just put hamburger helper in there for crying out loud. Leave the tuna stuff on the shelf. All that to say, there are certain smells that we just can't get past. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 1, the preacher says, there's a certain look to people who are walking in wisdom. Their face shines. They look different. Their, their countenance is different. 
In Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. It stinks. There's a certain way, he goes on to say, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So not only is there a way we look, the countenance of people who fear the Lord or walking with it, there's a, there's a certain smell about us. And so he's asking that hard question, to, is there a stench about us? A little folly will ruin a whole lot of wisdom. So how do you smell? Is there a stench that you put off when people smell you? They're not getting the fragrance of the Lord. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In verse 12, he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because, excuse me, I did not find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But here's what he says in verse 14, but, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And so that's what I want us to be thinking through this morning as we go through Ecclesiastes chapter 10, as verse 1. So what, what stench are you putting? Is it a stench or is it a beautiful fragrance of life, of salvation to those that we come in contact with as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 1. Here's the way we're going to break it down this morning. As you may know, going through these proverbial statements, it's hard to put structure as our Western minds like to kind of structure what he's talking about. Here's what we're going to talk about this morning. Kind of picking up some of these, uh, some of these categories that we picked up last week as I talked about under authority, joy under authority, and joy in our personal life. Here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about, we're talking about fearing the Lord. We're going to talk about folly. We're talking about folly on the personal level, folly at higher levels, and then we're going to talk about how this applies to work and our words. So that's where we're after this morning. The first thing that I want to point out in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 is the cost of folly for individuals, or the cost of folly on the individual level. Now, to understand the difference, we need to know the biblical definition of folly. We talked about fear of the Lord last week. is living before the face of God, living in the presence of God. So, so we need to understand what folly is. A fool in the biblical sense is not necessarily someone with below average intelligence. We know that, right? Folly does not always show up at the low end of the IQ scale. Rather, the term refers to someone who lacks proper fear of God. So it's opposite of fear of God is, is folly. And therefore, the one who does not fear God is prone to go the wrong direction in life and will go the wrong direction in life. It is the fool who says in his heart, as Psalm 14.1 says, that there is no God. So that's what we're talking about with those who are foolish, those who say there are, is no God, and those who don't live in light of the fear of the Lord. Let's read verses 1 through 4 again. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointments give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. 
Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offense to rest. And so the first, as we've been talking about already on the individual level, the first question, if you will, that the preacher is asking is, how do you smell? Folly makes us stink. He says this in verse one, that perfume would be something that was great value, was of great value. It was something that was, well, it was a costly commodity. It was a sign of wealth to have all of this perfume. Flies are not a costly commodity. You know this, right? But a little bit of that, of those flies, dead flies and something very costly, something very beautiful would make that costly commodity that wealth, that something of great value become ruined and it would stink it up. So here's what he's saying is on the personal level here is asking us the question. He's telling us that all it takes is a few dead flies to ruin the whole lot. He's asking us the question, how do you smell? Because here's what's at stake, that it doesn't take a whole lot of folly to spoil wisdom. It doesn't take, that's what he says in the second part of chapter one. So a little folly outweighs honor. Like little flies spoil the whole bunch. A little folly will outweigh wisdom and honor. Perhaps you could think of it like this. It takes far less to ruin something than it does to build it. Have you experienced that? It takes far less to ruin something, a bunch of little flies, than it does to build it. Perhaps you can think of it like this, something beautiful, something that smells good, something that's of value can be spoiled very quickly with a sudden lapse of judgment. And so here's what he's saying, the cost of folly on the personal level, the cost of folly at the ground level is it only takes a little bit, a lapse of judgment, stop living before the Lord, stop living in a way to honor him, and just a little bit, that can happen at a church too, can it? That just a little bit of folly can really send us in the wrong direction. So how do you smell? Second question he's asking, his mate, perhaps on the personal level, as perhaps we can think of this as a church, what way are you trending? Look at verse, verse two. A wise, man, wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart inclines him to the left. Perhaps you know in biblical language that the right is the place of strength, the left is the way of weakness, and so what he's asking us here is, which way are you trending? Which way are you walking? As Eugene Peterson once said, that discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. Which way are you walking? Do you notice what else he says in verse 2? He says, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart inclines him to the left. So the way that we are trending, the way that we are walking, whether to the right or to the left, it all begins in the heart. Where is your heart is what he's asking. For where your heart is there, your treasure will be also. We'll see later on, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Where is your heart? Which way are you trending 
Which way are you walking? Look at what it says in verse 3. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. The cost of foolishness is that you're trending to the left instead of the right. The cost of foolishness is that you stink instead of put off a beautiful fragrance as you were designed to do. The cost of foolishness is that you walk with no sense of direction. You don't know where you're going. There's no self-awareness, and it seems to be that everybody can see you but you. You say to everyone that you are a fool and you lack sense. Everyone sees it, and you continue to walk down the road. Everyone says, there goes a fool, but you continue to walk and showcase your foolishness before the world. The fool needs his eyes open and a little bit of humility and proper self-evaluation and self-awareness to understand that he or she is a fool. So he's asking us in this beginning, verse one through four, how do you smell? Which way are you trending? In other words, where's your heart? Where are you walking? This is how we can identify whether we're walking wisely or, or foolishly. And what is your temperament? That's where it starts to step on my toes a little bit. What is your temperament? Folly leads us constantly frustrated. Look at verse four. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offense to rest. Here's what he's describing. The fool is the one who leaves in a huff. I used to hate when people used to do this on the playground right out here when I went to school here. And they take their ball and go home. Have you ever done that before? Things are not going your way. You're ticked off which way you're going. Or someone in charge is mad at you. The anger of a ruler rises against you and you respond to anger with more anger and you're constantly frustrated. You say, I'm out of here. I'm taking my ball and go home. He's saying, for the wise, calmness, love covers a multitude of sins. Calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Here's what he's saying. Don't contribute to chaos by returning anger with anger. It'll cost you a lifetime of frustration. One preacher put it like this. He says, this is good counsel for workers with an angry boss, for students with an angry teacher, for parents with an angry child, or for wives with an angry husband, or vice versa. It is good counsel for all situations in life when someone else is suddenly provoked to anger and it makes us mad that he or she is angry. Just because someone else gets upset does not mean that we have the right to walk away from a relationship, especially if that relationship is ordained by God and is sealed with a promise the way marriage is. The way to deal with foolish anger is not to be intimidated by it or respond in kind, but to keep calm which we can only do by the power of the Holy Spirit. This was how our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, like a lamb led to slaughter, he did not open his mouth. So this is a call to walk in the footsteps of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. So he's telling us an improper word, a bad step, a bad attitude, a bad heart, a few bad flies can spoil the whole lot. Let's not be foolish. But this doesn't just happen on the personal level. Once again, as Solomon would, the preacher would, someone who understands as a king what kings are like, who probably rubs shoulders with a lot of people in authority, he sees this not only for individuals and smaller groups of people, but, but he sees how this infects entire nations. 
Look at verse 5. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the grounds like slaves. He goes on to say in verse 16, he picks up this idea again of foolishness and wisdom in high places. Woe to you, this is verse 16, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happier you, O land, when the king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Solomon is saying this is the cost of foolishness for nations. Solomon is saying that foolishness is everywhere. Foolishness and folly know no boundaries. There are fools in positions of authority. And the wise we see even in lowly places. Foolishness plagues the rich and the poor. It plagues the prominent and the lowly. Mark Twain once said, suppose you were an idiot. And suppose you were a member of Congress. But again, I repeat myself. Some of you will get that later this afternoon. You felt like that before, I'm sure. Some people are in high positions and you're wondering what in the heck do they do to get there? They're walking as fools. Maybe money or lineage or knowing the right people or willing to work the system or doing the right thing. There's all sorts of reasons they might be in those high places, but just because they're in high places, he's seen all of this turned on its head is what he's talking about in verse 7. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground. People who shouldn't be in certain places seem to find themselves in certain spots. And people who are wise are not in places of leadership. This is not saying that all leaders are foolish. You understand this, right? Praise God that he puts some wise people in higher places. So this is not a blanket statement, but he is saying, don't just think because you're leading a nation. Don't just think because you're a king that somehow you are wise. Or don't think because you're not leading a nation, because you're a blue-collar worker, or because you don't have a lot of wealth or resources, that somehow you are foolish. Wisdom knows no bounds, and neither does foolishness. And listen to how it can cost a nation. Look at verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child or immature. Perhaps here he's not just talking about age, but talking about wisdom and maturity. And your princes feast in the morning. You're saying, woe to you who have no wisdom, who are walking as fools as those who don't fear the Lord, and yet you're decadent. You're partying all the time, celebrating as if everything is going well. Woe to you, O nation, who is constantly celebrating but has no fear of the Lord. Happy are you, O land. When your king is the son of nobility, perhaps understanding here when your king is in the proper space, when your place, when your, when your king is wise and your princes feast at the proper time, they know when to party, they know when to celebrate, they know when to have a good time for strength and not for drunkenness, to celebrate and not decadence. That's when a people are blessed. When they're led by someone who is wise and they can celebrate at the proper times. This is the cost of folly for nations. This should cause us to pray for our nation. This should cause us to pray for our church. This should cause us to pray for ourselves that we would walk in wisdom that we might not stink. That our nation might not stink. Be spoiled by a few bad apples as you've probably heard it said before. 
This means we need to pray for our families that our families would not stink, that individually we would not sink, that we would not trend in the wrong direction, that we would not let our guard down because it doesn't take long. It takes a lot shorter time to destroy something than it does to build it. This folly also finds itself. This wisdom also pertains to our work. Look at verses 8 through 11. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Here's what the preacher is telling us as he begins to take all of this together. One, he is telling us that wisdom is realistic. As it pertains to work, as it pertains to living our life and doing the things that Lord has called us to do, he's telling us that wisdom is realistic. In verses 10 through 11, he's showing us our need for wisdom. What he's saying is sometimes it means that we take time to prepare to sharpen the blade, to sharpen the edge. He must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. And we know when it's time to proceed quickly. We know when it's time to wait. Wisdom can look at a situation and know, should we proceed quickly or should we stop and sharpen the axe? Wisdom knows when it's time to run ahead. Foolishness says, I have no idea what time it is. I'm not going to sharpen the blade. I'm not going to sharpen the axe. I'm just going to tear down the wall. I'm just going to dig the pit. All and that all leads to destruction for the fool doing the improper thing at the improper time. Folly rushes ahead when it should wait and folly delays unduly when it's time to proceed. But the wise man listens to the Lord. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. The wise man is one, as the Bible says in Matthew 7, 24, hears the words of the Lord and does them. So wisdom is realistic and they're listening for the word of the Lord. God, what time is it? There's folly at work. Folly at work is self-destructive. He says that in verse 8 and 9. He digs a pit at the improper time. He falls into it. He tears down this wall and the serpent bites him. He quarries stones and he falls into the pit. He splits logs and is endangered by them. And listen to what he says in verse 15. He picks up this idea of work again. The toil of a fool wearies him. And he does not know the way to the city. Here's what he's saying. The foolish one, having no idea what time it is, is just busy and toilsome. He's the one with the axe that he hasn't taken time to sharp, sharpen. So he's just beating and beating and beating and just can't get anywhere. But he's worn out and he's tired. Have you felt like that before? Not getting anywhere. Maybe that's foolishness. Maybe that's not listening to the word of the Lord and saying, God, what time it is? What, what time is it? The foolish, they keep flailing away at their work or their relationship without making much progress, especially spiritually. It would be wiser for the fool to sharpen the edge of the blade so it can slice through something with a single blow. If we are wise, we will know when it's time to prepare our blade. Perhaps you've seen this in education before. 
Be sure to get the best training, sharpening skills for effective service in the kingdom of God. It applies to relationships. A prudent courtship is far more likely to lead to a more successful marriage than a whirlwind romance. It applies to ministry before starting something new. Make sure that you are set up to succeed. That's one thing we've done over here at Riverside over the past several years is to set up a culture of discipleship so that we reach people for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can disciple them in small groups and in Sunday school groups and discipleship groups and all of those things that undergird our discipleship ministry here at Riverside. Look at verse 18. Here's here's what it costs. It's self-destructive. Look at verse 18. Through sloth, the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life. And money answers everything. Here's what he's saying. The one who is lazy, the one who is slothful, he gives this image of fatal decay. That it's deadly. Sloth and foolish work will decay your life. It will decay your work. It will decay your relationships. Let's not walk in the way of the fool. In verse 19, he says, For the wise, just as he said for the For the nation, woe to you, now blessing to you, the nation who lives this way. Woe to you who are foolishly working. You will self-destruct. Blessing for you who listen to the word of the Lord and know when it's time to do this or that or the other. You will have bread. You will have wine. You will have money. He's saying you won't miss out on anything. The Lord will give you everything you need. He will give you food. He will give you sustenance. He will give you the feast. So here's the cost of the foolish one. You will miss the feast. You will miss the joy. Sometimes you maybe think by laziness that somehow you will enjoy life more. But he's saying, no, you will self-destruct. Sharpen the blade. Do the hard work. And you will have bread. You will have wine. And you will have money. Now, he's not saying that money is the answer to everything in the way we might think of it. They're saying the Lord will provide you resources. And then you will get the opportunity to steward those resources for anything and everything the Lord has called you to do. To advance his kingdom. To reach out to people. Whatever that might be. That money will allow you to do things that perhaps you couldn't do before. There's folly on the personal level. There's folly at the national level. There's the cost of folly as it pertains to our work. And finally, there's a cost to folly. Maybe we should say it like this to go back to 10.1. A few bad words can stink up your life. If we don't know how to use our words or watch our words, we may find that a little folly, a few foolish words will outweigh wisdom and honor. We may find that a few foolish words will give off a stench. Look what he says in verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies his words, though no man knows what what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. Look at verse 12. The preacher is telling us here that as our words go, we are to be wise in our words. We are to speak graciously. 
He says it like this in the translation that I have. I use the English Standard Version. The words of a wise man win him favor. Now, he's not saying here, use your words in order to manipulate people. This word behind favor is grace. And so what the preacher is after is, use your words to be gracious. Use your words to be a blessing to people. The word favor is really the word grace and a favor that is understood. So here's what it is. If you understand grace, if you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are saved by grace and God has shown you immeasurable grace and mercy by saving your soul, then out of the heart, the mouth will speak. Out of this deep understanding of grace, your mouth will will speak. Isn't this the opposite of the way the fool uses his words? Fools realize that words have power. We can use them to get a laugh or get attention or to get something we want, to get a job, to get a girl or to build ourselves up or tear people down. But the wise use their words as instruments of grace because in their hearts they say there is a God. And they know the grace of the God. They know of of our God. They, They know the favor of our God. The grace that he has shown us. And you can tell it by the way they speak. The wise bless God with their words. Bless others with their words. They're quicker to encourage than they are to criticize. They speak truthfully, but they speak gently and humbly. They use their words to seek reconciliation. They speak words of love and 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 love and affection. They use their words to consider whom am I speaking to and how can I use my words to bless that individual. Fools use their words opposite. They just can't stop talking. Do you see what he says? A fool multiplies his words. A fool doesn't know what to say, so they just keep talking until they get what they want. They're after themselves, but not so for the wise. James, the brother of Jesus, tells us that our words matter. He says in James chapter 3, he says, For we stumble in many ways. Then he goes on to say, If we put bits in the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Look at the ships, though they are large, they're driven by strong winds. They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. Our words matter if we're going to walk in the way of wisdom. I love how Paul David Tripp said it. This was particularly convicting to me. So I I was thinking about wise words. Listen to the talk that goes on in your home. How much of it is impatient and unkind? How often are words spoken out of selfishness and personal desire? How easily do outbursts of anger occur? How often do we bring up past wrongs? How do we fail to communicate hope? How do we fail to protect? How often do our words carry threats that we've had it and are about to quit? Going back to 10.4. Stop and listen and you will see how much we need to hold our talk to this standard of love. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. They're gracious. They're a blessing. How often the truth we profess to speak 
has been distorted by our sins. So the wise man says, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Look at how he ends this in verse 20. Even in your thoughts, don't curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. What he is saying is say something stupid and someone's going to hear it some way, shape, or form. And it's probably going to be distorted at some point. So watch your mouth. The wise man watches your mouth. As you talk to your kids, as you talk to your spouse, as you talk to people, as you talk to others, watch your mouth. And so the question is, which way will you go? Will we put off a fragrance that is pleasing to the Lord? Will we work in a way that's pleasing to the Lord? Will we speak words of blessing in a way that pleases the Lord? Which way will we go? And here's the truth. It's easy to do when you're talking about words of wisdom. It's easy to do when we're talking about Proverbs. It's easy to say, okay, I got this. I understand what I need to do. If I just do these things, then I will be all right. It's easy to take a message like this and say, okay, in order to earn the favor of the Lord and not stink, I got to watch my words. I got to watch the way I work. I got to watch all of these things. But that's, that's not the message of the Bible. Yes, we are to live in this way, but don't put the cart before the horse. For many non-Christians respect the teaching of Jesus and believe that he offers wisdom to live by. And of course, as believers, we would agree, but we would say that such a view does not go far enough. Listen to me good, brothers and sisters. Divine wisdom is not mere words spoken by great teachers. Rather, God's wisdom is a person. For Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God for us. It is in the right relationship with Jesus that secures our entry to heaven, not mere obedience to his ethical pronouncements without looking to his cross for our salvation. And so let's proceed no further by asking the question, has God saved me? Have I believed in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because out of the heart, he says, this will come. Has my heart been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? There's good news if that has not happened this morning. It doesn't depend on your merit. He's not saying get yourself together and then come back. He's saying, I will make you new and by the power of the spirit, give you the strength to live according to wisdom. This is good news for the Christian because you got the power of the spirit in you and he will help you. He is the great helper. The spirit is. If you have not come to believe in Jesus Christ this morning, repent and turn to him. And times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. Repent and turn from him because he has accomplished salvation for you. And he freely gives it to all who believe. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God saved it, raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise. Seems pretty easy. Yes, it's by grace cost him everything for he did not spare his own son but gave him freely for us all for all who would believe have you trust in the gospel of jesus christ if you haven't don't go any further and try to live this out and think you're going to earn the favor of the lord it will not happen if you have the spirit praise god he will give you the strength to do this let's pray father